As I have been preparing for the opportunities that I have over the next few Sundays to preach, I have found myself daily battling a very serious struggle, perhaps something not foreign to some of you. I've been struggling to avoid being distracted by the world around me. More specifically, I find myself spending too much time thinking about how bad things are going in the world and not nearly enough time thinking about the blessings that I have in Christ. I've been fighting this battle since I became a believer. The events of this world catch my attention. I read a lot. And because of the internet, we have access to more news 24 hours a day. And so the events of this world, be it the latest political issue or the economic difficulties of the world or the wars going on in various places or the cultural trends of the day, they catch my eye. And rather than focusing on the Lord and what I need to do to serve Him, I find myself thinking about the latest ridiculous thing that some politician said or the hypocrisy of people on different sides of issues who switch back and forth with their arguments or being bothered by the complete lack of common sense that seems to permeate every area of society such that we don't even know what a boy is or a girl is anymore. What makes it so frustrating to me as I struggle with this is that it's not new. The names change and the words change, but the reality is it's the same issues over and over again and it's been that way since I was saved in 1993. I can sum up everything in the news that I read daily in a very simple way. I can sum up for you tomorrow's headlines for you today and I'm not a prophet. It's this, sin messes up everything. That's it. That's our news. We see it over and over again. I know better, and yet every day I take the bait. I see a headline, and I click, and the next thing you know, I'm forwarding it to somebody. Can you believe they said this? My blood pressure goes up, and if I'm not careful, I'm frustrated, and I'm aggravated. Because sin does mess up everything, and I don't want everything messed up because I think it makes my life less comfortable and enjoyable. And sin does mess things up, but as a believer, my life shouldn't change just because the world is in trouble. We're different. We have Jesus in our hearts. If you think about the lyrics that we were singing, the truths of the theology we're singing, that should characterize us every day, and yet we're so easily distracted by the latest scandal, the latest headline. What makes me frustrated is I know I'm safe in my Father's hand. I believe it with all my heart that nothing can separate me from the love of Jesus and yet I can't comply with the simple truths of Scripture. For example, in Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, beginning in verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So simple and yet so elusive to do that. I could save myself a lot of heartache and frustration. I want to do better, but I realize the temptation is still coming. The economy has problems. The world is a mess, and we're coming up on an election season, which really tests my faith. 
I need God's help to get my eyes off the things of this world and keep my eyes on the things above. And this morning, I want to try and help us do that by looking at scriptures that point us in the right direction. We'll still wake up tomorrow and sin will still be making a mess of things. But it's possible because God can enable us to keep our minds on what's truly important. Such that we can face this messed up world perhaps with a better heart attitude and the right focus. This morning we're going to be studying a few verses that I think can encourage us in this from the book of Hebrews chapter 13. It's actually the last few verses that I read in the scripture reading. We're going to be covering verses 15 through 19. If you've been at Lakeside for any length of time and you've seen me preach in the mornings, when I have these privileged opportunities to speak, I've been going through the book of Hebrews and getting towards the end of chapter 13. And as a reminder, I think the book of Hebrews was written to people that were losing focus just as we sometimes lose focus. For them, the challenges were unique. These were Jewish Christians who had come out of the old covenant background. We believe that at the time that the book was written, the temple was still standing in Jerusalem, and so their life was consumed with sacrifices. That's what they knew from birth. That's what they were used to. And they had come to Jesus Christ, and at least for some of them, as life continued to be difficult, as things were still hard, they were wondering, wait a minute, did we make a mistake? Should we have kept Jesus, but also kept all the old covenant sacrifices, all the old covenant Judaism? And the overarching purpose of the book of Hebrews is to say, no, if you've got Jesus, you've got all you need. He's everything. There's no salvation in animal sacrifices. For example, in Hebrews 10.4, he says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And he reminds them, as he's done previously in the book, a little bit farther down in chapter 10 at verse 11, that Jesus took care of everything. Verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. That includes you and me if you know Jesus Christ. The vast majority of the book is focused on this theological argument, but the writer understands that if we believe all these things, it should impact how we live. There's truth to be applied throughout the book, but particularly chapters 12 and 13, it's the practical outworking of the Christian life. What does it look like to be holy as God is holy? What should our focus be as believers living in this world messed up by sin? And I think the writer at the beginning of chapter 12 summarizes really the struggle we have every day and it's our goal every day. Hebrews chapter 12 beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And the remainder of chapter 12 and chapter 13, he's just showing us what that looks like. And that's the challenge, to lay aside all those things that trip us up, that keep us from moving forward in Christ, that keep our eyes focused here on earth instead of on the things above. 
that cause us to take our eyes off of Jesus and look at all the mess that sin is making. I believe our text this morning helps us get our eyes back on Jesus by pointing us towards characteristics of an obedient life. In fact, I've outlined it that way. We're going to be looking at four characteristics of an obedient life in Christ. And I pray that as we read through these, if you're doing well, that you'll excel still more. And if you find yourself in some way falling short, that you'll repent and confess it to the Lord and you'll change by His grace. So the first characteristic of an obedient life in Christ we'll find in verse 15, and it's this, thankful hearts. Thankful hearts. The writer says this at verse 15, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Really, everything is summed up by that little phrase, through him. In other words, the writer has just, through language that we're not necessarily familiar with, but he's really just reiterated that Jesus did it all. He paid the penalty for sins. Through him, we have forgiveness and a restored relationship with God. And because of that, because of what Christ did in our hearts, it should impact how we view things. So he says, through him then... Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. It's really talking about the outworking of our faith. The writer earlier said, made it clear in Hebrews 11, the beginning of verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please Him. So everything in our verse flows through Jesus. And this is something we're supposed to do not at a moment of time, not just on Sunday morning during the singing time. He says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Continually, meaning our heart attitude should be that at every moment, we're mindful of what God has done for us and we say thank you. This comes from the heart. A life of praise is supposed to be a mark of those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Again, as I alluded to briefly in the introduction, the believers to whom this letter was originally written were heavily impacted by the fact that animal sacrifices were ongoing. Their family were gathering that weren't believers were gathering for sacrifices at certain times and it's almost as though the writer is saying, look, you want sacrifices, let me show you the right type of sacrifice. It doesn't have anything to do with the blood of bulls and goats. It has to do with your heart. And these types of sacrifices have nothing to do with earning God's favor. Jesus did that. It's just an outworking of the love that we have for the Lord. He describes what he means by a sacrifice of praise. That is, the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. Again, it challenges us to think and to question how thankful we are regularly for what God has done. Sin does mess up the world. The world is a mess. The politicians are as bad as you think they are. All these things are as bad. The society is calling evil good and is condemning good as evil. 
But for believers, we know better. We still should have thanksgiving to God because of what He has done for us. We're giving thanks every day for Jesus in His name. Christians shouldn't be characterized by anger and complaining and frustration and being just as mad as everybody else at how bad things are. We're supposed to be characterized by having lips that are overflowing with praise and thanksgiving to God regardless of what's happening in the world around us. I think each one of us needs to slow down and think for a few moments. It's one thing to say we give thanks to God, but it's really reflecting on why it is that we're called to give thanks. And it requires remembering unpleasant things about ourselves. We see the evils of the world and rightly condemn it, but if we're not careful, we forget who we really are. The Bible makes it clear that we are sinners. Romans 3.23 is a familiar verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes you and me. Moses was speaking about a specific point in time, but I think his words resonate with our hearts as we think about our world. In Genesis 6.5, says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's your headlines. But if we're not careful, we think that applies to them and we miss that it was us. Apart from Jesus, we're not just struggling with sin. According to the Bible, we're slaves of sin. And when we're controlled by our fleshly, physical passions, we're not neutral towards God. We're not just on the sidelines waiting to pick a team later. According to the scriptures, we're actively hostile to God. In Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 6, it says, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We were sinners enslaved to sin, hostile to God. We were enemies of God. And from a spiritual perspective, we weren't sick. We didn't just have a spiritual flu. We were dead. Ephesians 2, beginning of verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's completely hopeless. If we're not careful... As we look at this world that sin is increasingly messing up, we can become like the Pharisee that says, Lord, thank goodness I'm not like those people. 
and lose sight of the fact that we're like the tax collector that says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And in the midst of that, of understanding how lost and helpless we were as enemies to God, we're reminded of what God did for us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, is a wonderful summation of why we have lips giving thanks to God. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Jesus' words to his disciples are true of us. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I want you to think for a moment about tomorrow's headlines, about the politicians that are going to frustrate you and the criminal acts that are going to offend you and the famous people that get more say in society than they are entitled to. And I want you to think about the people that you're going to see in your office that annoy you and that bother you or the people in your family that get under your skin or all the people that are going to post something or tweet something that's going to frustrate you. The people in society who call evil good and say sin is okay and that Christians are the one with the problem. Think about all those people. The difference between you and them apart from Christ is nothing you were as guilty before God as they were your sins were just as bad as their sins but God chose to forgive you in Christ Jesus is what they are doing evil and wrong and frustrating yes but don't forget that's who you were apart from Christ you were just as evil and wrong and frustrating. But God. They need Jesus just like you needed Jesus. God found you and he rescued you and your life is never the same. And that's why we offer a sacrifice of praise. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. We're praising God and giving thanks daily, not because we're spared from the world, but because in spite of all of that and in spite of our own sin, God chose to set his love upon us. We deserve judgment. The wages of sin is death, and yet God made us alive with him in Christ. That's why scripture over and over says rejoice always. In everything give thanks. Sadly, at times, as Christians, we don't reflect this in our hearts. That's the struggle I described in myself. 
Rather than reflecting on who God is and what He's done for me, I'm just preoccupied with all the annoyances and the things that I want the world to be different about. I think every parent's life verse that you tell your kids is do all things without grumbling and disputing. Philippians 2.14, we need to apply it in our own hearts. The world should not see in us that we're just as mad and angry as everybody else about what's going on in the world. They should see that even in the spite of the sin, messing up everything, that we have a sacrifice of praise on our lips and that we're continually giving thanks to God because we don't get what we deserve. We get Christ. We're loved by him, and instead of spending all of our time being frustrated by all the wicked people, we should be praying that they find Jesus as well. So the first characteristic of an obedient life in Christ is thankful hearts. The second characteristic is this, sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. The writer continues in verse 16. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Again, he's just laying out, if you want to sacrifice, let me show you what you should be doing. And here he's very direct. He says, do not neglect doing good and sharing. It seems like, as with other things, and as is common in our life, these believers were tempted at times to not do what they knew they should be doing. Doing good and sharing really is primarily concerned with taking care of the physical needs of other brothers and sisters in Christ who don't have enough of taking care of them. Certainly that can be in the form of encouragement and comfort, but it also takes the form of tangible help when they are in need. The Bible and over and over makes it clear that if we are a part of the body of Christ, we're supposed to take care of one another if we can and if we see that they have a need. For example, James in chapter 2 writes this at verses 15 through 17, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their life, what use is that? In other words, a platitude of prayer doesn't substitute for actually helping somebody who's hurting. Paul says something similar in Galatians chapter 6, perhaps even a little bit more of an expansive way, beginning at verse 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. This teaching is throughout Scripture. It's the evidence of a life of Christ. Our praise and our thanksgiving to God, which we rightly owe Him at all times continually, must always be accompanied by our actions in tangibly helping those who are hurting. The Apostle John summarized this well in his short epistle, 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children... Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. 
Again, this isn't just about doing good things to feel better about yourself. For centuries, people have been doing things they consider good. Even today, many unbelievers are doing good things. It all comes back to why we're doing what we're doing. This is through Him. This is because of Christ. Because of the outworking of our salvation, we're doing these things. This isn't, again, earning favor with God. This isn't working our way to heaven. We can do good things, so to speak, the rest of our lives when we can't work off the guilt of even one sin. That's all been accomplished by Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a temptation oftentimes in the church when society takes on a pet cause for the church to follow along. But if the church isn't doing what it's doing because of Jesus Christ, it's not pleasing to God. Certainly, there's never anything wrong with alleviating human suffering. That's commendable. But for us, we can't ever separate our testimony from our actions. If we do good just to try and fit in or just so we don't feel guilty, we're not pleasing the Lord. That's selfishness. But if you know Jesus, if you know Him, if you have a sacrifice of praise continually on your lips then it's going to show itself in how you treat other believers. And that's what the writer is reminding his listeners of. Don't neglect doing this, doing good and sharing. I read several commentators that I think accurately summarize the two verses that we've just been talked about. It really is summarized by Jesus. It reflects the first and second greatest commandment. Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 37, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. Living with a heart attitude of continual praise to God indicates that you love him with all your heart. Such that these petty things in the world can't distract you from your focus on Him. And if you do good and share because of the love for Christ, you are loving your neighbor as yourself. I am thankful for the good example of Lakeside in this in so many ways. We are a giving church. Our church benevolence fund is healthy and we regularly help people and the Lord keeps providing through the gifts of His people. That's a good thing. Keep giving. But I know countless other people here who give outside of the benevolence fund. They see a need and they immediately step in to meet it. Please continue to do so. That's a great testimony of what the Lord has done in your life. As you have, don't neglect to do good and share. Jesus made it clear this is an evangelistic testimony of the world. They'll know we're a part of the body of Christ. They'll know we're Jesus' disciples by this action. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And one of the ways we show that we have love for one another is by tangibly doing good and sharing with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So the writer has shown us two characteristics of an obedient life in Christ. Thankful hearts. Second, sacrificial love. There's a third characteristic. It's this, humble submission. Humble submission. The writer in verse 17 gives what is probably a corrective warning to the people. Obey your leaders and submit to them. 
for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Now, this is clearly talking about church leaders, your pastors. And there's a sense in which I'd just soon skip over a verse like this because it sounds self-serving for me to tell you how you're supposed to react to me and all the other pastors. But God put this in his word and we don't skip verses at Lakeside. So we're going to dive into what is stated here. And it means what it says it means. Obey your leaders and submit to them. seems from the context of the flow of the book and the flow of the discussion that there was a tendency on some of the people to discount their current leadership. Now, it seems from verse 7 that we read earlier that they had a fond view of older generation of church leadership, leaders who we believe had already gone to heaven. He said in chapter 13, verse 7, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. The idea is probably that those were former pastors who had gone on to heaven. And he was saying, follow after their example. It's interesting because a couple of verses later, he warns them about false teaching. In verse 9, he says, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. So there seems to see, be a situation where some of those in the congregation, they liked their former leaders. And they wanted teaching because they were really even willing to listen to error. They had to be told, don't. But for some reason, they needed an admonition to obey their current leaders. Listen to them. Submit to them. And as soon as you come across a verse that says obey your leaders, that just rubs Americans the wrong way. We are a fiercely independent people. Nobody can tell me what to do. I have freedom. I have my rights. And sadly, that often carries over into churches. I appreciate the suggestion, Pastor, but I'll do it my way. But the Word of God is clear and direct and says otherwise. Obey is not a suggestion, it's an imperative command. In the immediate context of everything, it just seems clear that if a pastor of your church tells you this is what the Word of God says and this is what the Word of God requires of you, you should obey and submit to them. God gave you the leaders of Lakeside. He gave you the elders that you have, the pastors that you have. God's desire for you is that you trust them, us, and obey and submit. Fight goes together. Obey your leaders and submit to them. It's a hard attitude that has practical implications. You're supposed to willingly subject yourself and submit yourself to the leadership of the church. Not just because you sign membership paperwork, but because God himself says, do this. It's interesting because as you read the scriptures, believers of every variety are called repeatedly to submit in a variety of circumstances. Everyone's required to submit to God. First Peter, servants are told to be submissive to their masters with all respect. In multiple places, wives are told to be submissive to their husbands. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, is one of multiple places that makes it clear we're even to be submission to the governing authorities. 
Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Obedience and submission is required over and over and over again. And submission really is a call to humility. Not trying to maintain your rights and your authority, but trusting God and being willing to accept those he's placed over you. It really is walking in the example of Jesus, who even though he was God, as the Son during the incarnation walking on the earth, he willingly submitted himself to the will of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 8 describe this well. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. That really is to be our attitude and it shouldn't be difficult to have that attitude towards the leadership of the local church that God has placed you under. Now I'm well aware that there are wicked men. I'm thankful I've never encountered one at Lakeside but there are wicked men that in the authority of these verses have abused congregations who have become dictators, who have tried to micromanage every aspect of life and spoke on things that Scripture never even addressed. However, those abuses and errors don't negate the truth of this text. God will deal with them. A true shepherd is supposed to exercise authority with love and compassion. And God's Word is clear. If you're taught from the scriptures by your leadership that this is what the word of God requires then you obey and submit you're doing it as unto the Lord it's interesting that he goes on to give a reason for it he didn't just say obey and submit but he talks about this he says for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account He's talking about the pastoral ministry that they're doing by keeping watch over their souls. The idea is of like a night watchman who's watching the city and on the alert for enemies. That's what your pastors are doing for you. They're trying to protect you from error and from evil and from the wiles of the devil and from the lies of society and from sin. It's serious work with serious consequences and there is a high accountability for every one of your pastors. It says there are those who will give an account. This isn't giving an account to each other or to you. It's giving an account to God himself because God has entrusted the leadership of Lakeside. Some of his sheep will give an account to him for our treatment of his people. God's very clear the responsibility of pastors have. In fact, you can hold us to this standard. I think Peter describes it well in 1 Peter chapter 5. This is what you should see from us as your leadership. Peter says this, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you 
exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. We try, and I'm sure at times we fail, to live up to those standards. But as we seek to follow Christ and we seek to shepherd you who've been entrusted to us by God, your responsibility and kind to us is to obey and submit. In fact, it's interesting, the writer continues, he says, let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. In other words, he's suggesting to us, he's stating a truth, that if the believers in a local congregation willingly submit and willingly seek to obey the word of God, then there's joy in pastoral ministry for the pastors. But as is borne out in many other churches around the country, if the people are rebellious and cantankerous and stirring the pot and causing trouble, those pastors will have grief. What's interesting is the writer makes it clear there's a certain self-interest here. If your pastors are joyful in their work, it's more profitable for you. If the pastoring are suffering grief because of leading you, then it's not to your profit. You're not getting the full value of their spiritual care if they're suffering because of your rebellion. I think the way you obey and submit is to have the hard attitude towards your leadership that Paul talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning of verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. Again, if any pastor of Lakeside, including me, ever told you to do something that violated the scripture, you follow God. As Peter talked about in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. But apart from that, if we give you instruction from the Word of God and you come to us for counsel or we preach from the pulpit, this is what the Word of God requires, then you're supposed to obey and submit. Now again, you don't have to take our words for it. It's a noble thing to be a Berean and to look in the Scriptures to make sure the Scriptures really say these things. But once you see in the Word of God why we're saying what we're saying, your responsibility then is to trust the Lord and obey and humbly submit. That's a heavy responsibility on the part of a pastor. I think we try very hard at Lakeside not to give directives outside of Scripture because we understand the burden you operate under. But if the word of God is clear, we will tell you what God requires and it's your responsibility at that point to submit and obey. Our duty is to love and care for you. Your duty is to listen and trust the Lord and obey. Brings us to a final characteristic of an obedient life. Thankful hearts, sacrificial love, humble submission, and fourth and finally, faithful prayer. The writer says this in verses 18 and 19, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things, and I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Pray for us is another straightforward command. He's asking and expecting that they will comply. 
Again, for whatever reason, there seems to be a hint that the people needed to be reminded to obey their leaders. But clearly the writer at some point had been amongst them. He was one of them. And again, as he prays specifically later to be restored to them, it's clear that for whatever reason, for now, he was separated from them. But he wanted prayer for the entire leadership of the church. Pray for us. Now, he makes it clear that they believed they were doing the right thing. He said, we have a good conscience. We're sure of that. And he says, we desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. In other words, these were good leaders. They were trying. There's no perfect leader. But they were desiring to do the right thing. And as much as they could before the Lord, they knew they were being faithful. But even though they were doing the right thing, and they were trying to do the right thing, he still said, pray for us, because he knew they needed God's help and the people's prayers to get there. Over and over in the New Testament... Faithful leaders ask for prayer. I won't read it, but you could go look in Matthew 26. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked some of the disciples to come with him. He said, couldn't you watch him pray? He needed their prayers. Paul more than once said, pray for us, pray for me. I can tell you without fear of contradiction from the word of God, you need to be praying for Pastor Steve and myself and every other elder at Lakeside. Continually, we desperately need your prayers. I think John MacArthur summarized the need for pastors to have prayer in his commentary on Hebrews. He said this, Church leaders are made of the same stuff as those they serve. They have sins, weaknesses, limitations, blind spots, and needs of all sorts, just as everyone else. He continues, God's leaders face temptations that most other believers do not face to the same degree because Satan knows that if he can undermine the leaders, many others will go down with them. If he can get them to compromise, to weaken their stand, to lessen their efforts, to become dejected and hopeless, he has caused the work of Christ great damage. Every pastor you have is human. We do have the same struggles as you. We get tired and we get discouraged and we get frustrated and we get impatient and we're tempted and we're weak. We can get disillusioned and frustrated. Pastoral ministry is not easy. I can say again without fear of contradiction, every one of your elders loves the work. We feel called by God to do this. We've been entrusted with a great privilege. It's a great thing to be one of your leaders. But carrying the burdens of God's people is a tiresome thing. It's wearisome. And it does suscept us to attacks from Satan on us and our families because of the damage it could do to the entire body if one of us is disabled. But your prayers enable us to serve God and to serve you. At times, this could be specific requests like what the author includes in verse 19. He said, I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. He had a specific prayer request. I want to come back to you. He loved them. He cared for them. And so he said, pray for that. I would plead with you, pray for us. We need your prayers as well. 
And at times we may have specific prayer requests that we share with some of you or with the entire church family. I would encourage you to take them seriously. Pray for them immediately and consistently, not because we're privileged and entitled, but rather because we're just as weak and needy as anybody else and we need your prayers. It really brings us full circle because sin really has messed up this world. And as soon as we leave here, we're going to be bombarded with it again. Daily life is messy and hard. And the longer you live and the older you get, it gets messier and harder. But I pray that God will touch your heart so that you can see that even in the midst of all of that, we have reason to give praise to God because he saved us. And because of our salvation, we care for one another and love one another. And because of the precious nature of the body of Christ, you care for your leaders through prayer as well. I pray that in the midst of an increasingly dark world, we'll be able to exhibit the attitude that James talks about at the beginning of his letter. In James chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Please join me as I close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, this world has unlimited trials. Lord, we can't close our eyes to the reality that sin is increasingly distorting and destroying your creation, including the unique and special part of your creation that is humanity. And yet, Lord, in the midst of all of the mess, including the mess that we made of our own lives when we were slaves to sin, you chose to set your love upon us, and that makes us different. Not because we've done anything are we different, Lord, but we're different because you've opened our eyes to see Jesus Christ for who he is and we've embraced him. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live rightly in light of the great salvation you've given us. Lord, help us be thankful every single day for your mercy to sinners like us. Lord, I pray that you would help us in an increasingly dark and hostile time to care for one another and to love one another. And Lord, I pray for Lakeside. You've created a special body of Christ here in this small church, and I just pray that you would protect us as leaders and protect the people so that we would continue to be a light in darkness in our community. And Lord, I'm aware that some could be here today that don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I pray today that you would open their eyes to the reality that they are sinners before a holy God and that the wages of sin is death. But Lord, in the midst of the reality of their darkened and desperate condition, I pray that you would open their eyes to be able to see Jesus, that they could understand what it is that we're giving thanks for, that Jesus died on the cross and took the penalty for sins for sinners like us. And Lord, I pray that you would bring new people into your kingdom, new people into the body of Christ who would be a testimony to you and for you in a darkened world. Lord, we love you. Help us be faithful in our weakness. 
Help us serve you above all else. We love you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.